This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bausch & Lomb. This content was captured during a synchronous virtual symposium. Polling took place during the symposium. How's everyone doing this evening? Alright, good meeting so far? Good. Almost over probably. Well, we are delighted to be with you this evening. We're going to be talking about dry eye and MGD. Hopefully this is a topic near and dear to your hearts. If not, enjoy the dinner and the drinks and learn a little bit of something. We're happy to have you here. All right, so I'm Kelly Nichols, the program chair. I'm at the uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham. I'm currently dean. I've been doing dry eye research and in clinical care for decades, so I have a lot of experience in knowing what's going on with dry eye, talking about dry eye, and this has been a really exciting academy. There's been some great information that we've just learned that we'll be sharing with all of you as well. With me tonight is my co-faculty member, Walt Whitley. Interestingly, and he'll introduce himself in a minute, we're both from Reno, Nevada. Anybody from Nevada in the room? Oh, come now. Oh, just someone moving to Nevada. Anybody moving to Nevada? Oh, all right, all right. We love you, we love you. All right, well, go ahead and tell us about yourself. Well, excited to be here. Thank you all for being here uh, this evening. Uh, my name is Walt Whitley. I'm the Director of Professional Relations and Education at Virginia Eye Consults in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, my role within the practice is I, I do see patients about three and a half days a week, but the other day and a half, it's mainly professional relations, uh, helping with the collaboration between optometry, ophthalmology, but also with primary care and all the different specialists uh, in our area. And then additionally, I do oversee the dry eye center within the clinic. Uh, we have about 25 providers, and so uh, I, I guess I'm like the, the dumpster for dry eye in my practice. So my cornea partners, glaucoma partners, they have patients. They said, oh, go see Whitley. So, so that's what I do. Yeah, so if you're near him, he'll, he'll accept referrals, but he'll also coach you how to do it yourself so that he doesn't have to accept your referrals. But, but lots of knowledge, and he's actually from a really fantastic practice who really supports optometry, so that's really great. All right, well, Walt's going to kick us off in talking a little bit about the prevalence of dry disease and kind of what we know about who's got it. All right, who here has dry eye? All right, who here loves dry eye disease management? Well, good, just want to make sure you're in the right course once again. <laughs> Uh, and, and so we love dry eye. We're glad many of you love dry eye. Uh, and this is something that's so you know near and dear to us. We all have those patients uh, that are suffering. And this is a quality of life issue. This is a quality of vision issue. And so this is something that we, uh, where we can help our patients. And so just think about that last patient that had dry in your practice. You know, you know what were some of the clinical findings that you saw? What was the history? What are some of the things that they've tried before, and what, you know, what are, what's bothering them the most? And a lot of times, patients, they've been suffering for over three, uh, what, some studies say over six years. Mm -hmm. uh, patients have been tried, they've tried three different artificial tears. One thing that they don't want from us is the next flavor or the newest iteration of dry uh, uh, artificial tears, because that's not going to provide uh, that relief, it's not going to address the signs and the symptoms that our patients do have. And so we're gonna talk about some great options that we have available for our patients. 
But first, we have to identify those patients. So U-Haul beat, uh, beat the numbers when it comes to the prevalence of dry eye because if we look at the, uh, the Beaver Dam offspring study, that it was about 14.5% of patients. If we look at the DUES-2, it's anywhere between 5 to 50% of the population has, has uh, dry eye disease. But look at, look at these numbers. And here you see 30 million people in the U.S. have dry eye. There's other data points that show 44 million patients are suffering from the symptoms of dry eye disease. But look at how many are diagnosed. It's only 16 million. But even, even more astounding is people are suffering, but we're not treating our patients. And if we look at the, uh, the, the prescription medications that are prescribed, only 1.5 million patients. So what are your thoughts on this, this data? I, I just, that number always shocks me. Because not, it does also include those that have received a prescription, but then not filled it, you know, not refilled it or not filled it. And I, w I learned a statistic at this meeting that 24 million households, there's at least one member in that household using an artificial tear. But if you look at there's only 1.5 million that are being treated in the United States, this is just a large gap in treatment. So we're, I don't want to say we're not doing our job, but and maybe you feel like we haven't had good options, but certainly there's better care that we can provide our patients because the number, the disparity between 1.5 million and like 24 million households is huge. And so we, we'll talk about the options here shortly, but also just going through our differentials and, you know, is it really dry disease? We've had discussions earlier today about neurotrophic keratitis, but is it, is it Demodex? There's a whole lot of things that patients can be suffering from, but it's also important for us to look at all the various structures from the front uh, with the lids, having them close their eyes. Do they have full lid closure, uh, utilizing our stain, expressing the glands, and I'm talking about a different slide, but I can keep going. Uh, actually, Kelly and I, we were just going to do this whole lecture off one slide, the, the lead slide, but we figured we'd, for, for detail, we'll go with uh, more. So predisposing factors for dry eye, I mean, there's, we can go over this list uh, all day long. What, what, uh, what, what sticks out to you the most here, Kelly? Certainly uh, lid margin disease, you know, MGD, we're going to be talking about that a lot, but dry eye and MGD more or less have the same risk factors, and I think we're probably not a, as good at really addressing systemic disease, and then the concurrent ocular surface diseases, which we'll talk a lot about too. And so whether it's previous ocular surgery, uh, preservatives, and we know we're seeing a lot of different medications that are preservative-free, uh, or, or the, the other factors, systemic medications. Patients ask, you know, why do I have dry eye? I'm like, well, look at these 15 different oral medications you're taking, and anti-whatever causes more dry eye. We can look at gender. Uh, various studies show women tend to have uh, dry eye. The prevalence is higher. But as we grow up, many of you have heard me say this, we wrinkle, we gray, we dry up, we get cataracts. And so it's a normal part of life uh, for our patients. <laughs> and so looking at age, and so one, that's one of the other call-outs from the TFOS dues too, is anybody can have ocular surface disease. Anyone can have dry eye disease. And so whether they're young or more mature, I mean, this is, this is part of life. And you can see the blue is the male and the, the green is the, is the female. Who here does uh, mybography or imaging of the glands for, for everybody, like even kids? And, and let's, so, say, let's do who, who does it who, at all. Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, so there's a few in the room. Yeah. And, and, for, and, and you know, younger ages is what was just hinting at. Are tending to, we're tending to see more and more yeah. mybomian gland dropout in younger, even children. 
And so that's a little surprising and maybe shocking because as they age, they're very young now, what's it going to be like for them? And so I think being cognizant that there are some tools that we should be doing and maybe things that we should be looking at even in children, especially those that are extreme screen time users, maybe gamers, you know, might be worthwhile. So, so Kelly, you've been a, a part of a lot of this research. So, so why do you think we're seeing this in young kids? I mean, why do we have a 20-year-old that has like 80% dropout? I know. I... I think diet probably plays a role. I don't know if hydration does. Um, there's probably some genetic predisposition, but I can't imagine that it's not even, it's, it must be related to some screen time. It has to be because we never used to see that. Now, we maybe didn't look because now we have looked in younger, younger folks. We've looked in kids, we've looked in teens. And so we're just seeing more now maybe Maybe it was there and we didn't know. Having said that, these, if you look at the 18 to 24 group, look how small that is, and that's based on epidemiology studies. Interestingly, and we don't have this slide, but if you break apart MGD from dry eye, you see the aqueous deficient dry eye increases to about the 50s or 60s and then plateaus, but MGD increases across all age in both genders. And I think that's the thought of, in some instances, patients that have aqueous deficient dry eye, it's just an unstable ocular surface for years, and that then leads to meibomian gland changes. So it is interesting. To, so you should be looking for MGD in everybody. Uh, definitely. And so here's our first polling question. You know, which of these patient subpopulations are most likely to have some degree of dry eye disease, MGD, when they first present to you in clinic? And so, you know, we, we're seeing some of these responses here. Yes, uh, older patients. Is, it's is, active, so you can keep It's going. going to keep changing, so I'll just keep changing what I'm going to say. Uh, but either way, you know, one of the things that did stick out is the glaucoma patient. And if you have a glaucoma practice, I mean, many of us love uh, to diagnose and, and treat glaucoma. But if you have a glaucoma practice, you do have a dry eye practice. Uh, the comorbid condition, any of the autoimmune conditions, uh, diabetes, and 54% uh, of patients with diabetes do have dry eye disease. And we can keep going more and more to, into all this. Anything you want to comment on there, Kelly? Uh, contact lens uh, discomfort oh. is the most common reason for contact lens dropout. Now it's pretty high on your list with 50%. Yep. And so thank you for p taking part and playing our polling game there. You'll uh, have more opportunities in a few moments. That's right. And so the most common signs and symptoms in dry disease, and we could read this, uh, this slide here, you know, for me, the number one thing is going to be vision. Uh, dry eye is a vision disease. Patients are coming to us for the comfort and quality of their vision. And if we don't optimize that, that tear film, that's the first surface that light hits. And considering the cornea and the, uh, the anterior surface, uh, carries about 66% of the power of the eye. That's why it's so important for our contact lens wearers, for our surgical patients, for any of our patients. Signs and symptoms. Well, why are you here today? Well, I have blurred vision. Tell me more. Is it always blurry? If it's always blurry, it's refractive error, cataracts, something else going on. But if it changes or fluctuates throughout the day, then we have an unstable tear film, and that's something that we do need to address the hyperemia, the surface staining, and what's been exciting is with some of the newer, uh, newer drugs that are out there, we're seeing improvements in total uh, corneal fluorescein staining. And Kelly and I have been a part of many different uh, drug trials over the years, and I mean, when have we seen this before? Um, it, some of the data is really remarkable and the changes that are seen within only two trials, and you do have to repeat trials and dry studies, so to have 
a reduction or, an, or a cure, you know, total, total clearance of corneal staining in some cases is really remarkable. So the data is getting better as we're getting new therapeutics. I do want to echo uh, uh, for a second about vision and this being a vision disease. You know your foropter can be a really good tool for dry eye. If you've got that patient that's like, I don't know, let me see it again. I don't know, let me blink. Can I blink? Can I blink? Wait, hold on a minute. Let, let, can I see it again? That patient could have dry eye, and you need to maybe, when you look at the slit lamp after that, really pay attention to the meibomian glands, because I'll bet that they would have a reduced tear film breakup time, maybe some staining, and probably MGD. And the symptoms are easy. I mean, the patients, they've, they've been suffering. And so when they come to us, just follow up on that. Uh, who utilizes surveys and questionnaires? Speed, OSDI, and many of you do, and if you don't, that's something, there's your call to action, is you know, when you when you get to clinic next week, download the speed questionnaire, the severity, the frequency of uh, the dry eye disease, even though it's favored more toward MGD, uh, but if the seven or higher, those are patients that we're either gonna treat, we're gonna prescribe, or we'll bring them back and reevaluate uh, those patients. And so the symptoms are easy, but it's important for us to be looking for the various signs of dry disease. And even if patients, they, they, maybe they don't understand their symptoms. That's normal to them, but that's where we become the provider and said, this concerns me, and this is why we're going to, uh, we, we need to uh, follow up on, on dry eye for you. So here's a study from Leinert looking at uh, prevalence of dry eye sufferers. It's a long-term retrospective study, 107 men and 154 women who reported the diagnosis of dry eye disease, uh, response to a questionnaire about the change in disease since diagnosis. And several symptoms were reported during at least one phys physician examination of these patients. Here you can see about 46% reported symptoms of fluctuating or blurred vision. 75% reported symptoms of discomfort but then also 91% said they used an artificial tear. And so, you know, with, with patients are, are, are suffering, and so it's important that we take this into account and give them some type of treatment, whether it's pharmaceutical, whether it's a procedure. Oftentimes it's gonna be both for our patients, but also considering the lifestyle, lifestyle changes that they can make. There's a lot of patients that won't tell you that they're using artificial tears because they'll think it's like an over-the-counter thing they don't need to report to you, kind of like a vitamin. And so it's, it's worth it if you think that somehow you capture in a symptom or your staff captures it. Asking them if they either use or want to use artificial tears, that's a really great question in an interview setting to see if they, they have risk for dry eye. And so there's numerous challenges when it comes to dry disease, and we know that the signs and symptoms don't always uh, correlate. Here we, we can see patients often present with conflicting signs. They may have low shermers, but a high tear foam breakup time. Um, you know, staining, we always want to take a look at, at staining uh, for our patients, uh, evidence of staining, uh, but they do have a normal shermers and tear foam breakup time. Symptoms alone are not diagnostic and, and, and insufficient to determine severity. Uh, the questionnaires, whatever one you, you use, it is still nonspecific. And so that's why it's important we do the history, review the, review the medications that are on, lifestyle issues or things that the patients are doing, but also doing our thorough examination. And so when we look at dry disease and meibomian gland dysfunction, it's important for us to remember, I asked you when we started, you think about those dry eye patients and you know, what sticks out to you during the examination. 
we have to remember 86% of patients uh, that MGD is a major contributor to the evaporative etiology of dry disease. And so yes, we do have our aqueous deficient, uh, we do have our evaporative, but 86% of patients do have the evaporative form of dry eye. And so whenever we're prescribing or, or think about what our next step is, we have to find a ways to, uh, ways, we have to find a way to address this uh, for our patients. We've seen, we've seen diagrams like this with the uh, vicious cycle. Uh, some of our colleagues will call it the BSTO, but essentially what we're doing is we're looking at the lids. And the lids are, are so important, making sure we're addressing the flora. We know that there's a proliferation of, of microbes that lead to the lipases, the esterases that increase the melting temperature of the meibomian glands, but then that could lead to the inner circle, the lipid layer deficit, the increased tear evaporation and osmolarity, leading to inflammation, leading to keratinization of the meibomian glands, and so it's important for us to address that root cause of dry eye. Yes, there may be an inflammation does play a role, and that's in the definition of dry eye, but oftentimes we need, we need to uh, treat it, both the, the, both the glands, but also the inflammation for our patients. We see this every day uh, within the clinic. Five to 50% of our patients, whether, whether it's a, a patient in my practice that's coming for cataract surgery, here's 63% of pre-cataract surgical patients had signs of, of MGD. 80% um, of glaucoma patients, this is a, there's other studies, Arita did a study, patients who are on prostaglandins, it was like 95, 96% of patients did have MGD. Contact lens wearers, uh, also 86% of patients uh, with dry eye have MGD, as I mentioned. So going back to the diagnosis, and so here's our second polling question, so we'll have to take a photo of this. Uh, which of these tests uh, in your hands best correlate with the patient's symptoms of dry disease and MGD? Well, what do you, what do you think? I mean, we're going to get these, uh, get the results here. Well, I actually know from some studies done previously <laughs> in our group that tear osmolarity does actually correlate pretty well as a single test. We'll see what y'all say. But I think that in general, you can't just do one test. I mean, there's a number of things that you need to do. We don't have a single gold standard diagnostic test for dry eye or MGD. And so even while I know osmolarity does correlate well, I know that most people don't have that in their practice. But what do you have? A slit lamp, fluorescein dye, so you can do tear film breakup time. You might have a ratten filter so you can see the staining easier. Um, you can look at the lid margins. You can have the patient look down. I, I heard today a doctor say that she starts out every slit lamp exam with uh, the patient looking down. And so then she looks at the eyelashes, the upper eyelashes, and then when she feels that she's got an idea of that, then she just has the, and she's focused on the, the lid and such, then she has the patient open their eyes and she continues on with her slit lamp exam. But that's how she manages to get the look down part in every single one of her slit lamp exams, looking for collarettes on the upper eyelid margin. Thought that was clever. Anybody do that? Yeah, good, good. And so, looking at the TFOS uh, dues uh, diagnostic battery test, you know the triaging questions that we may have. Uh, Kelly and I were part of the Dry Eye Summit, which was well, about a decade ago. And and essentially, you can use the questionnaires, but there was the four main questions that we we had. Uh, one is, do you have dry eyes? Yes or no. Are you bothered by uh, red eyes? Yes or no. 
Do you feel the need to use eye drops, yes or no? Or does your vision change or fluctuate throughout the day, yes or no? And if they say yes to any of those, then those are patients that we want to follow up on, whether you're going to address it at that visit or at a future uh, visit. Looking at the risk factors, once again, the, the, uh, the smoking, contact lens wear, going to a daily disposable uh, lens for, for our patients. Uh, the screening questionnaires are just asking the patients the yes or no questions. We have the various tests. We saw the various uh, diagnostic tests. What are your favorite two, if you had to pick two? You only get two. Tear film, not including symptoms, tear film breakup time and staining. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're both in the homeostatic marker column there. And I just don't think everybody has osmolarity. But if you have um, symptoms, either you do it by a survey or, or like Walt just said, you ask them you know, in an interview format, and then you have one of those tests that hits that abnormal mark, they are like a positive dry eye patient and you then need to determine is it aqueous deficient dry eye or both. So that's all with your slit lamp. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, if I had to pick two, one is express the glands. It's only not obvious if we, if we don't look, but then also uh, the, the, the staining, uh, I, I do take a look at that as well. I think that yeah, expressing glands is super important. It's the next, once you think you have an idea they have dry, you absolutely have to express the glands to see what's there. Yeah, but that's one of the issues we've had in the struggles over the past is with dry patients because we know these drugs work. We know these the, the, the medications we've had, they are uh, efficacious, but if we're missing the blepharitis, if we're not addressing the glands, those patients are still symptomatic, and that's why we have to treat them both. So it's always important to look at structure versus function. We do this within glaucoma. We do this in the, in the retina world. Here we can see what the nerve looks like and, and showing the patient these are your glands and whether they have the full, uh, full structure of their myobilomian glands or if they have the nubbings on the bottom right. If you see that, telling that patient, this concerns me. You have lost 80% of your glands, and so you have 20% left, and it's important for us to do this, that, or the other to, to, to optimize your ocular surface, but to address those glands and get them functioning better. Ooh, let's ask who here has the ability to do myography in your practice? Okay, so not too many of you, and that's pretty common. But you can do it on the cheap down low. If you take a transilluminator and kind of put it up by the nose, you can kind of pull down the eyelid. And you can tell if they have glands or not. You can't see it in the detail like you see here, but you can tell if they're there or not. So if you're not sure they, they're seemingly having a lot of symptoms, you think it's evaporative dry eye, it's important to kind of try and do the, the down and dirty check to see if they have meibomian glands present. Because you can press all day but if there's no meibomian glands to express, you're obviously not going to get anything. So it's nice to know both in tandem with one another. And so structure and function, yes, we know what the glands look like, uh, whether it's normal or wh whether you have the dilation, trunca truncation, and dropout. But what is the function? When you press on those glands, is it clear oils coming out? Is it cloudy? Is it inspissated? Or is nothing coming out of those glands? And typically what I do in clinic is I'll write exactly what I see because we have numerous providers in our clinic. So if I'm not, if I'm not uh, seeing that patient on follow-up, they know exactly what I was looking at. Uh, there's different ways that we can grade, uh, grade the meibomian glands, and so that, typically what I do in clinic is I'll just say, oh, 50%, 60%, or whatever it may be. Um, you know, yes, you can go the different degrees, but not everybody will know what degree two is if I don't tell them what the per percentage was. Yeah, if you're, you're in practice by yourself, you can kind of set your own scale. If you do practice with others, 
you need to have some sort of consistency so that you can do it together. This is a pretty common scale, and I think it's, it's good for us as optometrists. We're used to grading things on a zero to four scale. There are other scales, but this one's easy because it's 25% decor sort of chunks in between each one, which you can kind of make a good guesstimate. And when, when, we're gonna go, when we go into treatment, though, even that bottom patient, even with the, the couple glands that are left, uh, Marikami did a study, even with these several glands, these can still function. And so we want to make sure we are still addressing it. And we'll talk about how we do that for, for treatment. Lift, look, push, and pull. What is, what is coming out of those glands? Um, and also, when we're talking about looking, as Kelly just mentioned, yes, we could look down, take a look at the surface. Do the does the patient have a complete lid seal? Because if they don't have good lid closure, let's say you put uh, fluorescein in there and you see this inferior corneal staining, then that patient's not closing the eyes all the way. You can put medicine on the eye all day long. You can do gland treatment, but it is the exposure that's causing that problem for that patient. So what are we expressing? What is consistency of, 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 of the glands? Here's a video from Alice Epitropoulos uh, doing the meibomian gland uh, expression here using uh, the, the Kelly Nichols forceps. I'm not really sure what they're called, but, <laughs> check the, but look at all this. No, it's dinner time, sorry. <laughs> sorry, yeah, Pretty it is gross. dinner. gross, yeah. yeah. Toothpaste, right? Yeah, toothpaste. Yeah. And what's crazy is sometimes these just keep coming. Sometimes you know, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And some patients love this. Like, so I'm sure this patient comes to Alice to have in-office meibomian gland expression, and this is a, a manual way to do it. Yeah. You'll have your very best result if you're doing therapeutic expression if you warm the lids first. So if you use a brooder mask or something similar to warm up the eyelids before squeezing. And see, it just keeps coming, doesn't it? Yuck. You just Patients, gave me. Yeah, they usually know like that when it's time to come back in. When that was one of the most awkward moments. I had someone moaning when I did that. You said the relief that they come. I was like, uh, well, someone here stay in the room with me, <laughs> please. Uh, so express the gland. There's a diagnostic expression, but there's also the therapeutic expression that we'll that, talk about. That, that we'll talk yeah. about uh, osmolarity. Uh, this, is, this is looking at the salt concentration of the tears. We know osmolarity is a part of the definition, or hyperosmolarity is part of the definition of dry disease. Uh, how we do it, we just take a sample of the tears and it gives us a number. And depending on what that number is, it lets us know, is there normal homeostasis of the tears? And many of our patients want that number. And here you can see the scale, uh, mild. Essentially, I use 300 to 320 is mild, 320 to 340 is moderate or severe. And just like we don't treat glaucoma off of one number, we don't treat osmolarity off of one number. We look at this over time. So each time I see a patient back, uh, it's, it's no touch uh, for those patients, but I'm always ordering osmolarity. 300 or 300, 280, 280. If it goes up to 320, that means the tears are becoming unstable, there's increased salt, and so this is something that we do have to address. And also important that you look between the two eyes if there's a big discrepancy, eight milliosmoles or more between the two eyes, that's an indicator of the inability of the eyes to sort of normalize themselves and, and kind of catch up with the other. So it's an emerging dry eye situation. Uh, looking at inflammation, the MMP9 uh, within the tears. So whenever we have elevated MMP9, those are, that leads to stressed epithelial cells on the ocular surface. It is non-specific inflammatory marker for dry eye, uh, but we do utilize this test too because if you're seeing inflammation, 
We need an anti-inflammatory, and so we have various drugs that can do it. And even if it's just a little pink, you can get this information. We can send you the slide. Uh, but even if it's a little pink, then that is still positive for inflammation, and that's where I would consider it an anti-inflammatory, adding it on a, uh, for our patients. I will say, if you've never really done that test before, it's really important to make sure that the little, the little pad that you, you know, wipe up against the conjunctiva, you have to make sure it gets wet. And in a patient that has pretty significant dry, it's hard to get it wet. So you kind of have to rub it around a bit. Now, maybe you're not doing that. Patients don't like it much, I'll tell you. But you do have to make sure you get enough sample in order to get a good reading. So, Kelly, do you use this much? Because we used to. And this is looking at the ocular surface interferometer and looking at the, uh, the quantification of the lipids uh, within the tear film. If it was uh, 60 or, or lower, then there's a 90% chance of patient at MGD. Uh, this is part of the, the lip of you. Uh, it also lets us know the partial blinks. If the patient's not a full blinker, then having that talk with the patient, blink, do that full blink uh, um, whenever you get a chance. I actually think it's probably more useful for that blink assessment because you can have a very thick lipid layer and still have MGD or dry eye. So I don't think it's a, a very good single test. It can give you some information. All right, so any questions on treatment before we move on? Yes, sir. So, interesting you talk about the, 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 the test for MB9. It took me three years to get it through my hospital because for private practice, they waive CLIA certification. Mm -hmm. For a hospital, you have to go through CLIA certification. It took forever. Yes, he's got a very good point. Um, any of these, he's saying that he finally got it in his hospital where he works, and it took a while because if you're in a hospital setting, you have to have a certain level of CLIA certification where you might not if you're in a private practice. Actually, optometrists in private practice are in a weird situation. Well, it's a good situation because you don't need to have the level of CLIA certification that MD would. So, and then in the hospital setting like that, you would. So it can take some time, it is worth it, and I'll tell you, that to have a bit, even a bit of the higher certification like you do have will allow you in the future to use some of the, the diagnostic tests that are emerging that test for other things in that same sort of mini lab based scenario. The, the other advantage in doing it at the time was I had to convince the formulary, okay, at the hospital that we were, because they were, we were, at the time we were prescribing too much restasis compared to other hospitals. So at that point I said, okay, I'll give you a test the documents, we have inflammatory disease, and we need the cyclosporin A, and it worked. Yeah, that's a very good point. So I, I'm sure you heard in the back, but he was correlating the use of having a positive inflammatory test with the need for an anti-inflammatory, in this case, um, cyclosporin was used. So the benefits of that CLIA, whether it's in the hospital or CLIA wave test, there are newer tests that are available, uh, looking at lactoferrin and, and, uh, and IgE. And so if you have high lactoferrin, low IgE, then that patient likely has aqueous deficient dry eye. Uh, if the patient has high IgE and low lactoferrin, then that patient likely has allergies. And if they're both high, then treat everything. So. Yeah. And I think we're going to see more of this sort of lab-on-chip tech technology coming forward as we learn more and can do more with a small sample of tears. So I, I, we're not out of the woods with CLIA. I don't necessarily think it's going to get quicker or easier, but it's worthwhile. All right, so we're, we're going to start with a polling question. Which of these pharmacologic therapies do you use or will you use to treat patients with predominantly evaporative dry eye, and you can select more than one? 
Some of them might not be on your formulary, but we're going to talk about a few of these new products as well. Yeah, one of the questions that we used to, we, we still get, but is, hey, are you a lafinograss person? Are you a cyclosporin person? And what was our answer? Is both. You have to be both. It's important for us to understand the properties, the efficacy, the safety for all of these different uh, medications out there because, you know, it, we live in an insurance world. And so we may, even though we have our favorites, it's important for us to understand the mechanism, uh, understand each drug and how it's going to deliver its effect for our patient. All right. We've got some ocular surface gurus in the house. And I'd say, actually, most of you are doing a fair amount of prescribing, which is good. It used to be that 95% of the scripts were written by 5% of the doctors in optometry. And now I think it's probably headed more towards 20% um, of doctors prescribed. So 95% of the scripts is probably written by 20% of the doctors. And so I think we're seeing more and more. And the easiest type of scripts to write are for dry eye. Now, it is true the drug can be amazing, but if your patients can't get it, the formulary isn't working, that makes it a challenge. We'll talk about that a little bit. We understand, and the companies understand that as well. They're doing the best they can behind the scenes to try and get on formularies and things like that. It's not immediate with new products. And they'll do things like coupons and other incentives at first, and that's good. But also, it is, you know, they know the battle they have to wage there, too. And so they do work hard. They're not trying to thwart you using their product. But there are a lot of hoops that sometimes need to be jumped through. So we mentioned and we saw there that many of you are using an immunomodulator. Um, they have been shown to be effective as anti-inflammatory therapies used largely if you see corneal staining, but not alone. And there have been a number of studies which have looked at these type of immunomodulators for MGD as well. And it used to be thought that MGD was not an inflammatory condition. I would say that the MGD report that we did, the TFOS MGD report, kind of said that it wasn't an inflammatory condition. Well, it kind of is true in that if you express the meibomian glands, you are not getting inflammatory cells out of those meibom, out of the meibomian glands in the meibom. So, you know, they're not seeing, like, it's not pus, in other words. And so uh, we know that's true, but that doesn't mean that the lids aren't inflamed and the tissue all around the meibomian glands isn't inflamed. And that inflammation around the meibomian glands can influence the production of meibom. So while it's sort of an indirect inflammatory condition, it is one. And so it can need a immunomodulator in some instances. There also have been comparisons. We're going to talk a little bit about some comparison studies, if there are any, um, and and if if one type of treatment is better than another. So if you treat the meibomian glands with heat, for instance, or if you treat them with cyclosporin. So I love comparison studies. This isn't necessarily one here, but you can see that meibomian gland dysfunction when treated with cyclosporin A does show improvements. This is one of the comparator studies where you'll see lefitograss versus thermal pulsation. So there's been a few of these. They're generally not large samples, and we're going to go more into the in-office therapies in a little bit. But these are sort of the comparator studies which are looking at, like, lefitograss in contrast to thermal pulsation, which is better and when. 
The short answer is you need to do something. And then the longer answer is, well, what do you have in your office or, or who around you can you refer to if you don't have these technologies in your office? Because largely you do need to go to the source. You can't just re treat the resulting inflammation. You generally have to attack the meibomian glands in order to get the best response if you have MGD. Topical corticosteroids are, are always an option and often used in conjunction with other therapies. I will say that the Melton and Thomas approach to dry eye from decades ago was to use pulse steroid in conjunction with artificial tears. Um, we do have an approved, FDA approved um, steroid for the signs and symptoms of dry eye in a short-term course. So that actually is used now, I think, more commonly, although generic lodopredinol is also used in some instances. Do you have preferences? Uh, typically, I'll go with the, the FDA-approved one. Why? Because we know the data. We know that uh, in the stride one, that patients, they, they care about their symptoms, that within day, uh, four days, patients were, they felt better. And so they did, they did see some improvement. That pulse steroid, I mean, that's something that still needs to be part of our, our momentum because there are patients that can't get some of the various medications due to whatever their copay is, a high deductible plan. And so those, those cases, I'll put them on a steroid, uh, the FDA approved one if possible, and then bring them back. You know, I'll tell them, hey, we may need to do this now, maybe in three or four months down the road, three or four months down the road. I'll combine that with punctal occlusion, which is underutilized still uh, with, within dry eye, but, uh, but this is something that is part of our momentum. Yeah, you can't, you can't forget about the use of steroids. I mean, everybody should feel better on steroids, and if they don't, you maybe need to look and see what's truly happening, because steroids really should, we all think, you know, the steroids should help, and so, and generally they can be a good tool for us to have. And then one more thing on the steroids. One of the things that many of us do, we do, do induction therapy with the steroids. We want to get that acute inflammation under control. We bring the check pressure. You prescribe a steroid. Uh, always check the pressure. Always check the nerve because if someone's going to respond, it's going to be a glaucoma patient. Bring them back in two to three weeks if you want. Four to six weeks is typically uh, what we do. And then we may need to put them on some other medication. But that's traditionally how we've done it with what's available. But learning about this new data, just wait till you see it. Yeah. Topical azithromycin is an option. Uh, it was used quite heavily for MGD at least a decade ago, I would say. And then the product got, you know, kind of bought and sold through different companies. But you can get it now, again. Um, and it is thought that it might have an anti-inflammatory effect of the tissue. And that would help re return the, the meibomian gland to being able to produce lipids normally. Um, you can also do an oral doxycycline, and I do know colleagues who will use that. And again, there are certain situations which you may not be able to get medications for patients. Um, and these sorts of what you might call older generation therapies, they're still effective and should be considered. Some states have weird laws regarding the use of doxycycline or oral doxycycline, how many days you can prescribe it for. So you need to keep that in mind too, depending on what your state law is, if it has specific um, descriptions for individual medications or not. Also, you do have patients that have concomitant um, lid disease. They have anterior blepharitis that you think is really, you know, bacterial related. And so sometimes calming down the lids with a topical antibiotic steroid could be useful. However, it could be something else. So you need to make sure you're ruling out other things before you just blindly go throwing on a topical antibiotic steroid combo. And erythromycin was on the bottom there. We've had some discussions today about how 
some of our colleagues will just say, use erythromycin on it, erythromycin ointment. And so I would say, again, you need to look a little more carefully rather than taking that approach. Again, I mentioned the orals and the topicals. We kind of went through that before. Okay. Just, just to mention on the oral azithromycin, anytime you're prescribing that, you want to make sure you're looking at their medical history because if they have any heart issues, uh, it could interfere with the QT interval and put that patient into uh, arrhythmia or AFib. That would not be a good day in the office. All right, there is a question as we get started here um, from somebody who's uh, watching us from online, probably wondering when the question is going to be asked. The question is, is MIBO just a glorified artificial tear? Well, very appropriately, let's talk about this now. Truth be told, it is available as an artificial tear. It's not really an artificial tear. It's over-the-counter purchase in Europe. And if you haven't seen it or tried it, it's just very, very different from an artificial tear. And we'll talk to you about this here in a second, back and forth. We've learned a lot about it, had some opportunity to actually uh, explore some of the data, and uh, it's, I think it's pretty cool, quite honestly. I'm, it's one of the things I'm most excited about, and I'm not, I just don't say that about anything. It's a semi-fluorinated alkane that's indicated for the signs and symptoms of dry eye in patients with MGD. And it actually was a dry eye clinical trial. It wasn't run like an MGD trial. They didn't validate a new endpoint, but they ran it like a dry trial. They had to have repetitive studies, large N, that had uh, you know, equivalent results between them in order to get approval. So they went through a fairly rigorous process. We have some data here in a second. I was really excited about this data when I started to see it coming through because I thought that it was really intriguing. And how we'll use it in, in our armamentarium I think will be very interesting. So it was the only, it's the only therapeutic that's been looked at in patients with MGD to date. And it's thought that it forms a monolayer at the air fluid interface. And I do have a picture of that in a second. I don't think I have it next, but let's check. Yeah, I do. Okay, so this comes directly from the company that created the science. And this is directly from the scientist, the chemist, that, that really understands where it's going in the tear film. So it is, this is a, a picture of the lipid layer, which is tiny, very, very, very thin. 50 nanometers or so thick. And so you see the air on the top, the lipid air interface, which is where this molecule sort of aligns itself. It has the ability in this, in the, in, it has the ability to sort of stack up next to each other forming a layer. It could be that, you know, when you have like tear film breakup and you see it breaking up in some places differently, it looks clumpy. I think it might have the ability to fill in those gaps. So it'll like, after a blink, it'll surface and fill in those sort of pools where there's no lipid. It does not interface with proteins from what I understand from the chemist. And it does have the ability though to sort of move up and down in the, the aqueous layer because you know every time you blink there's like these huge shear forces but it then comes back and realigns itself at the air lipid interface and there's still the lipid layer kind of underneath it. The neat part about it is it's very clear it has the same refractive index as water and so it isn't a blurry sort of lipid I won't call it a tear because it's not. It doesn't have any water in it at all, and it doesn't have a pH either. It's its own molecule, and it's like 100% of it. So 
It's really unique. We've never seen anything like this before. If you touch it, uh, it feels silky, sort of smoothish silky, and it's a tiny drop. So when you put it in, as you see in the picture on the left, it sort of spreads out, and it's almost like you can't feel it, wouldn't you say? So yeah, it's it unique. Mm -hmm. So that's what it's doing, which is interesting. And it actually, too, penetrates the meibomian glands. And I didn't believe this until yesterday, because you have to make me a believer before I'll agree. Um, so they sent me some data about dosing in rabbit eyes. They've done some labeling of it to see that actually it does get into the meibomian glands. And what it might be doing there, because it's from animal studies, what it might be doing there is sort of liquefying, because it does interact with lipid. And so it could be interacting with a lipid that's in the meibomian gland itself and sort of liquefying it. So if you imagine that you have lipid that's, you know, if you were to express, it would be hazy. It might be able to liquefy it some and allow it to come out more readily. In theory, but I do agree that that is a possible, plausible theory that could be happening in humans. So I think that's actually quite interesting. All right, so this is some of their data from the studies. I'm not going to belabor this. You can go by their booth or whatnot and get this data. But they met sign and symptom endpoints in two trials. They didn't have to repeat trials. Sometimes you'll see a company have to add another trial for symptoms or add another trial for a sign. But they showed that there were statistically significant changes from baseline in visual analog dryness at day 57, which was their outcome day as well as a change from baseline in total corneal fluorescein staining, so across the entire cornea at day 57 as well, compared to saline. So they can't compare it to a placebo because there is no placebo. It's not something plus medicine, it's just something. And so they compared it to essentially water in the study. So um, there's other data that we could talk about. They showed data changes early as 15 days. And I think that we'll, and this is a four time a day dose, so they've probably got some studies they're planning to do on doing like less dosage, maybe two times a day, and maybe even earlier than 15 days. Some practitioners I talked to this week who prescribed it quite a bit are putting a drop a sample in in office and seeing what patients say about it and how smooth it is. Yeah, I mean, this is impressive data. Day 15, day 57, both signs and symptoms. And when we look at the symptoms, for, so for that uh, visual, the dryness score, zero is not dry, 100 is like super dry. On average, those patients were about 65. Uh, the other comment on this is within the study, the patient did have to produce tears. So Shermer was done, but they also had to have MGD. And you always wonder about safety. It was something you've maybe not heard of before. And there were really not very many adverse events in the treatment group. There were actually some in the non-treatment group, in the saline group. Um, as you actually, anytime you put anything in the eye, you expect to have some um, irritation. But it was a very low percentage of adverse events than, than what you typically see in any of the therapeutics that we have for dry eye to date. Another new therapeutic that we'll talk about is TPO3 Demodex, it's DEMV. Um, this is for looking for a cure, is one of their outcomes, choleric cure, and then clinically meaningful choleric cure were two of their primary outcomes. One was primary, one was secondary. And, um, and so these were patients that had greater than 10 cholerets, actually more than that. They had to have grade two, I believe, right, um, at the beginning of the trial. Again, this is having patients look down, and they look to see if the cholerets, which are pathognomonic for Demodex, were cured. And Wiley Chambers at the FDA is, is 
very interested in the concept of cure for anything that's going to get FDA approval. And this is a new kind of target area. So that's why those words are used. Um, that doesn't mean that there's zero at the end. It means that it's gone down to what would be clinically acceptable levels, in this case, less than two. Um, and I, I just think that this data is actually quite remarkable as well. It really does do what they think it does. And, you know, I, I, I saw a patient back this past week. So in the clinical studies, majority of the patients were grade three. And, and so what grade three, so they had to be two or higher, but majority were grade three. So if you think about the collarettes, they had anywhere between 100 and 150 collarettes on their lashes. So it's twice a day for about six weeks for those patients. 85, if they combine the Saturn 1 and Saturn 2 data, 85% of those patients went to 10 or less collarettes. And so that's impressive. Uh, but as we just saw, what, 54% had the collarette cure. And so if you see that, the Demodex, which is also a carrier for staph and all the different bacteria, I mean, we know we prescribed scrubs in the past. The patient has two plus blepharitis, you prescribe whatever you want, you see them back with the lid scrubs and you see them back in two weeks, what does it look like? Two plus blepharitis, because they don't do it very well. And so now we have, a, it, it's impressive, this is without lid scrubs in the study, I mean, it's essentially eradicated and cured uh, those, those colorettes. I think this question here was relative to maybe our last discussion. What happens after three months? Do you pulse dose for breakthroughs? Okay. So for what happens after three months if it's pulse dose with steroids? Essentially, a steroid, uh, any steroid, or dry eye patient, initially I'm seeing at least, what, four, four or five times in that first year. Initial visit, four to six weeks, whatever treatment I put them on, I'll see them a couple weeks after that. But if it's that pulse patient, I've already, I've, I've seen this patient, I've checked their pressures, I'm monitoring at least every three to four months. And so at that three months, I will bring them back and, and check their pressure again. As for if we're talking about uh, MIBO, uh, we have the studies that go to day 57, and questions that we've gotten is what happens after that? Well, it's likely to go back to what it was before, because the patient has dry eye, and so we're going to keep them on that. And the best way to think about uh, uh, MIBO is essentially it's a sur surfactant. And so like if you have a dam, right, you're trying to want to keep the, the water in the reservoir dam, and so they put surfactants in there so it doesn't evaporate so quickly. And that's essentially what we're trying to do with MIBO. And, and you know, there's no reason not to prescribe it. So if you have that patient on artificial tears, especially for a commercial patient, it's essentially zero dollars for the first two months. I didn't mention that. And, and go ahead. Yeah, both of these products you could get through a pharmacy called BlinkRx. And, um, and you can do it straight from your EMR. For MIBO, they're, it's free for your first prescription. For TPO3, um, it's mostly low cost. Yeah, it's uh, $50 it should, be, yeah. should be the max they pay, but many patients are paying about $20. Exactly. So they're working hard to try and have you be able to have some access to these products. Related to a new product, especially if you actually are killing mites, you're wondering, well, when they die, then what happens? Um, and, you know, because they're there, so shouldn't they be causing some irritation? Or shouldn't the medication actually cause some irritation if that's what it's trying to do is kill Demodex? And actually the adverse, um, if the adverse, the AE event rates were you know, not that much compared to what you think you're doing there, and they were actually quite short-term. Most of the cyclosporin products are somewhere between 15 and 20% in terms of burning and stinging on installation. And I would expect to have a little bit of that when you're actually sort of killing, mass killing, some people say, of the mites. 
but it does actually go pretty quickly. And I like the data or the interest or the concept that their lifespan is, I want to say, 18 days from birth to death, but then they have eggs, mites, that are there, and so those also have to basically go through their life cycle as well. But not all of them are in the same time frame. So it's not like you get them all and then all of them are gone because there's the eggs that still have, they have to hatch and then they have to grow and then they have to be gone. So there is a period of time in which you have to go through the life cycle. But you do see some effects here early on and I think that's just because you're getting a bulk of them very early and then you sort of have to wait it out while you do the downward curve in terms of how much are still left on the lashes. Yeah, the longest data I've seen is after that six week of treatment at about six months, then you're going to start to see the increase in, in the mites. Oh, and with the mybo and what might happen after, after you've used it a bit, if it truly is having some impact on the meibomian gland, that might be sustained. We don't know. Um, and it will be interesting to see how you can add maybe that to additional types of therapeutics. Like if you do an in-office treatment, what happens if you add that on? If you're getting ready for cataract surgery, what happens if you do that? There's going to be a lot of studies that would be interesting to know that data as we start to see it. Now, most people who have been prescribing it for the three or so weeks that it's been available have prescribed quite a few and had good success, no comments. This is actually for both of these. Have had good results in getting them, some insurance issues. But in general, patients are responding very positively to both of these brand new therapeutics. Okay. So learned about this really literally maybe a day and a half ago, and it was on your list of things to choose. Um, in May, a cyclosporin water-free pH therapeutic was approved. And you're wondering, is this similar to MIBO or not? And indeed it is, made by the same company, Novaleek. Um, and then now this is being, this was sold to a company called Harrow Health, H-A-R-R-O-W. And so it'll be available soon, maybe as soon as end of November, but likely rolling out over the holiday season into the early part of next year with a launch. And so it is, you would think, you know, what's the most common thing that people say about cyclosporin? It burns and stings. If you imagine, though, that it's in this, this perfluorobutyl pentane vehicle, it sort of nestles in it. And from what I understand, based on its chemical sort of structure, it's smaller um, and it kind of dives down into, because um, it likes lipid as well, but it also likes the sort of lipid component of our cells, the epithelial cells. So it dives itself down after blinks to that layer and then through gradient releases the cyclosporin, which sort of flows into the tissue. So it tissue targets, essentially. And when it does that, it allows for, you can kind of see that in the second picture there, it allows for four times more penetration than a water brace treatment because it sort of dives itself down there. It does also get into the meibomian glands, but it's much it's smaller and shorter acting in that situation. So they truly are different from one another and they call them either sisters or cousin molecules, even though they're very similar, being both water free and not pH based at all. So I'm really excited to see this in action, have only seen the clinical data, it's not available yet. 
But if you have patients that experience a lot of burning and stinging and do need a immunomodulator, this might be a, a great approach. Yeah, the other thing, you, actually, you do see fast. And so seeing some, uh, some of the data here, um, I'll, I'll let you take it. No, no, go ahead. And so here you can see the majority of benefit, uh, patients benefit within two weeks. Traditionally with cyclosporine, we tell patients how long would it take. You know, with 0.05%, maybe four to six months. With 0.09%, maybe it was a month. But here we have data within, uh, within two weeks that we're getting improvement, uh, three grades improvement in total corneal fluorescein staining, which is clini clinically meaningful when we're going back to dry eye is a vision disease. Now, in this case, since there is a therapeutic, the cyclosporin, it was compared to the vehicle, which is the vehicle. So it's a bit different of a story than you saw with MIBO. So that's why you actually do see some improvement in the other group as well, because you're using kind of a good carrier. Not as good as you would see if it was perfluorohexyl octane, but still it has some, some benefit. Even with that, there's still a statistically significant improvement at 15 days, which I think is pretty remarkable. And this study was designed to assess sign and symptom, which is like all the other dry trials. So it was not the same kind of study that was used, that, that Restasis used in the beginning in their trial, as also was seen with CEQA. So different types of study design, this addressed symptoms concurrently and you were able to see an improvement in symptoms as well. I thought that was the next slide. So uh, this just goes to show that the permeability of the cyclosporin is uh, much better because of this carrier and it having that gradient at the ocular surface where the cyclosporin sort of dumps itself into the tissue. I really, so one of their studies they carried out for a year to see what happened and in the first picture there, you see that corneal staining decreases within the first 15 days and is maintained throughout the early part of the study, but then plateaus. These were fairly significantly stained patients, so they plateau at about a level of five, so they still have some dots in probably, I would guess, inferior and nasal and temporal of their cornea that, that still stayed there, but still there was a 52% reduction in that persisted for a year after stopping the treatment. Um, right? Yeah. And so then they also looked at tear production Shermer's tests and saw that the Shermer results continued to improve, get better over the course of a year, as well as the symptoms continued to get better or, you know, lessen over a year. So we don't see year-long data very often, and we certainly don't see year-long data where you continue to see improvements like you see here. Um, we do have some three-year data from restasis, uh, and I don't know how that compares to this, but certainly in all the restasis studies, they generally don't look at symptoms at all, and they don't look at corneal staining. They primarily have looked at the Shermer change. Anything else? Okay. Uh, there's two studies were called Essence 1, Essence 2, and the OLE there. I don't know how they say that, but that's the one where they extended it out for a year. Um, they did have some installation site uh, irritation, mostly mild. You can see that in the red box down there. Only one person that was in the year-long study discontinued for irritation. And I would say if you look at any of the other cyclosporin data, you have numerous patients that continued even or discontinued even within the short time due to burning and stinging or installation site pain. Site pain. So it seems haven't had it in my hands yet. It seems like it's going to be a less burning and stinging, perhaps more quickly effective cyclosporin. All right, in office stuff. Yes, sir. Um, you're talking about a 
Yeah, it is. So, so I've asked that, and yes, it is a higher concentration, and when you, you know, of course, seek was a higher concentration too, you can get, um, you can get higher concentrations made by a compounding pharmacy. Interestingly, this is in a very tiny drop. It's like a um, less than half the size of a normal drop. So even though it has higher concentration, it has less molecules of cyclosporin in it. And they've done that specifically because it is so effective at getting to the target tissue and releasing the cyclosporin. So yes, it is a higher concentration, but there's less of that concentration in each dose. It's a BID dose. Okay, need to move on. So I'm gonna whiz through a little of this thermal pulsation. I think many of you, some of you said you have this in your office, there's three different versions of it. You can have the um, sort of over your eyelid version, which is the lippy flow. And that's been around for the longest period of time. It gives warming and squeezing at the same time, but it doesn't require any doctor assessment or evaluation. They've done some studies looking at three years and found some results where there's still improvement a, long, a number of years later. It doesn't, where they get kind of back to baseline after three years, after one treatment, small n. But you do in some patients see a sustained um, response. I think most of the time people talk about six months to one year in terms of a retreatment. There's a handheld device that's made by Alcon that you can look at and you have to actually look through it and it provides warmth and the ability to squeeze at the same time is highly doctor dependent. So the doctor has to be there for the entire time, but does also provide, it's called ILUX, does provide warming and squeezing. And there's been a comparison of those two devices where you have basically the, the LipaFlow versus the, the uh, handheld device and you see that they have fairly similar results between the two. So yes, you do get effects that are both warming and squeezing and releasing some of the mybum from the meibomian glands with some continued success out in this study over four weeks. Joe Tauber is a very good ophthalmologist who really is passionate about knowing the differences between therapies because he wants to know which is best for his patient. Okay, we've done that one. Um, let's see, that's their original study. And then there are some other, I'm gonna show you some new data in a second, but there are some other heating techniques which I haven't used this, um, it is available. It's like a warmer that you kind of press along the eyelid delivering heat. Non-disposable can be cleaned, can be adjustable in terms of its heat. There's a goggle system which I haven't had the opportunity to use but it also heats all the lids at the same time. It, again, is non-disposable, needs to be cleaned and has adjustable heat settings. They can sit there with that on on their own. But in both of those situations, there's no squeezing of the eyelids. That would be, need to be performed manually by the doctor. Then you can use this, what seemingly looks like a really uncomfortable um, technique here <laughs> to deprive the eyelid margin to remove biofilm. Doesn't quite have to be that rough, but it does. Do you use it often? Yeah, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, when he's having a bad day and he wants to take it out on a patient, he just brings them in for this. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I do wanna to get to some of the new things and, and this new data here. So at this meeting, we um, had some presentation of data from this technique, which they're little, um, little like almost stickers that you stick on the tear care system. And then after you warm them with the patient blinking normally for what is it, 
12 minutes, 15 minutes. 15 minutes, then you can squeeze gently the meibomian glands. This gives the doctor kind of control over cleaning out the lid margins. I actually think it's, uh, it gives the doctor the most control in the easiest way and that you don't have to sit there and hold the warm on, yet you then at the end can go through and squeeze the meibomian glands if, you know, and, and make sure you know what's going on there. So they did a study recently, um, reported it at this meeting, where they compared uh, treatments, one treatment at baseline and one treatment at five months to a six-month use of cyclosporin A, restasis. And so at six months, which was the time point that they evaluated, is, is sort of what we'll be talking about here. So they reported that there was an absolute change from baseline at each time point starting at you know, one month, three months, six months, tear care versus restasis. The tear care instrument reminded that there's uh, one treatment at the beginning and then one treatment at five months with the evaluation at six months, giving both the best opportunity to do their very best against one, one another. So here you see that there was a statistically significant improvement um, with the tear care at all time points. In my bobian gland secretion score, in the number of glands that were yielding secretions, and the number of glands yielding clear secretions. So they did quite an extensive evaluation of the meibomian glands using fairly commonly reported in study assessments of the meibomian glands. And I think that's pretty remarkable that across all of those, the tear care is improved. Now, these are also patients that had uh, a Shermer score, I think, believe that was somewhere between about three or four and ten at enrollment was a requirement, and they all did have MGD and symptoms. They saw improvements in corneal staining and conjunctival staining in, in both groups, which you may expect given that these are patients that have a mixed version of dry eye, but tear care did perform better. And so they report or conclude that tear care is superior to branded restasis. It wasn't an equivalent. It was a better than study in measures of tear film breakup time and meibomian gland function, which were their primary outcome points and secondary outcome points. So they really felt like this was kind of a real world study and comparing what might happen in a practice, you know, treat the meibomian glands with a in-office warming procedure. Their ultimate goal as a company, I think this is you know, notable, is that they're trying to get it approved for being able to be reimbursed. And they're the only company that is an in-office warming procedure that's trying to do this. Now, I don't know, that's an uphill battle. Part of the reason for this study was to actually provide this information to payers to see whether or not that they'll bite that this is something that's worthy of being um, done in office that can help patients. I don't do this, I kind of don't recommend it, but it's out there. You may have an ophthalmologist or somebody who you work with that does interductal probing. I, I always felt like you didn't need to make a new hole for a meibomian gland, but it's out there. It's called the mask and probe. Um, there's also, the, now this is interesting, and I think we're learning a lot more about IPL for patients with rosacea and, and, and trying to help their rosacea as well as their meibomian gland dysfunction, it seems to be quite positive. There's been at least one meta-analysis through the Cochrane Review, which has shown that it is successful in helping those types of patients. Um, and it, we're, we're learning more. I mean, it's, it's been around for a bit, but we're learning more. Not everybody can do it in every state, but it is quite effective. We're getting one at the school soon. She doesn't look too happy, does she? <laughs> well, she got the nails coming out of the eyes. 
Oh, goodness. <laughs> and it is thought that it might reduce bacterial load as well as Demodex. All right, real quick. But, but before you get to the pipeline, even though we only have a few minutes left, <laughs> um, you know, so thinking about all these different treatments, the microblepharo exfoliation, so we do combine that with any of those procedures that we do, and I'm fortunate we have the IPL, we, actually we have pretty much everything there, but thinking about just not that, but where does MIBO fit in? And so I see it, this is gonna help extend a lot of the, uh, the treatment successes that we've been having, and so that's one place I'm definitely gonna use it. Yeah, a question came through about whether or not it is a lifetime drug. And, you know, maybe. Um, it depends on what else comes along and if it can be used in conjunction or if it, should it be used first line. I, I certainly see that it can help with evaporation and probably has some impact on the meibomian glands. So it seems really interesting to me in that case. It seems like it would be really interesting in, case, in patients with meibomian gland dysfunction that wear contact lenses. I, th I can think of all kinds of studies I'd like to see. But in general, I, I'm encouraged and enthusiastic about it. And like all of dry, dry eye is a forever condition, you know, until we can figure out how to exactly solve it. But yes, so these treatments are necessary. So this is an interesting one. They're in, uh, finished up with phase two, heading into phase three trials in the U.S. Not there yet. Go back. So um, this, this company is uh, looking at a product that actually breaks selenium bonds, and that would be the same as head and shoulders. So you know how head and shoulders, you know, helps with flaking and dandruff. Well, that is all, you know, keratin that needs to be broken up. And so you have keratin that likely blocks your meibomian glands. And if you can break up that meibomian gland stickiness that's blocking up the duct, you can likely then allow for the meibom to flow more freely. You can imagine that in conjunction with all kinds of other therapeutics. So I'm encouraged that this is something that's going through the process and we're learning more about it. I'm excited to see where phase three goes. Again, there's a bit of their data. Um, a new one that we're gonna find out pretty soon, by the end of November, we're supposed to hear about Reproxilap, which is a RASP inhibitor. This is a high up on the anti-inflammatory, like sort of food chain. It's a reactive oxide, ox, oxygen species reducer, essentially. And what it, what it can do, again, is sort of halt inflammation high up, which may be sort of the inflammation that can be found in ocular allergy, which they're aiming to get approval, as well as dry eye. So it could act like a steroid without being a steroid and having all of the side effects of steroids. The studies look really, really good, and again, by the end of November, we'll find out whether or not it gets approved by the FDA. It wouldn't launch until sometime in Q1 or Q2 next year, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about this data, and we'll see how the FDA feels about it. All right. And then there's two others just to briefly mention. Topical azithromycin we talked about is available. There's still additional studies of it in ointment form. And then the other one we found is this cloud, oh, it's called cloud, base cloud, something cloud. Yeah, late, sorry. But this one is, you know, on clinicaltrials.gov and it, and it um, impacts cholesterol and breaks up cholesterol. So it may be useful in also normalizing the lipid layer and the tear film. This is only in like phase two and I haven't heard much about it. It's a cloud base, cloud form, clouds. Anyway, stay tuned for the cloudy day. CBT006. <laughs> yes, let's just call it that. So here's a case just to put it all together and, and finish. 
here's a patient I saw this year, 45-year-old white male, presented for a dry eye evaluation, a second opinion for dry eye, blurry vision, both eyes, constant symptoms, uses olipatidine for itching, artificial tears, preserver-free six times a day, history of FACO, you can see the medical history as well, as, and the family history. Utilizing the speed score, so this patient was symptomatic. I mentioned seven or higher. Those are patients that are, that, that, that are suffering. This guy has, it was at 22 over, over 28. Dry eyes, a vision disease, and you can see the vision 2050 and 2030. You can see the slit lamp examination. There was inflammation, so positive MMP9 testing, as well as high or moderate salt concentration in the tears, 324 and 314. Uh, Mr. Smith, this concerns me. Look at your glands, and you've lost, what, 50% of glands on one eye, maybe more on the other eye, and so this is something that we do need to address, but you have inflammation, you have some gland issues that we do need to, to address. And so since there was inflammation, this is where I used an FDA-approved on-label treatment. I used it three times a day, off-label until it's gone. Uh, check the pressure, so after I did the staining and everything, I always finished with checking the pressure and check the nerve prescribe a heat mask, do something for the flora on, on the lids itself, and so I use hypochlorous acid, prescribe a nutraceutical because it's gonna help with the dryness from the inside, uh, and then there's also preservative-free uh, preservative allergy drops uh, um, that, that are available, and then I discuss thermal pulsation with the patient, followed up four to six weeks, no touch, tear osmolarity, and MMP9. When he says no touch, that's what he's telling his staff, so that, that the eye comes to him pristine? Yep. Right. yep, exactly. Because sometimes my staff will put uh, numbing drops in the eye and then it interferes with, with the, the, the staining. So I brought the patient back. VA has gotten a little bit better since the last visit. The symptoms have improved significantly using drops as directed. His history is still the same. But look at the speed score. So it went from 22 to 16. Why? Because the steroids does help with the symptoms. Uh, but look at the vision. It was 2050 and 2030 previously. Now this patient's about 2025. Cloudy secretions, no telangiectasia. And why I have that there is that's how I decide, am I gonna do IPL on our patient or am I gonna do some type of thermal pulsation? And so since there was no telangiectasia, that's why I was thinking about thermal pulsation. Tear film breakup time, four seconds. You can see the MMP9 and the osmolarity did improve, but he still was, had mild hyperosmolarity. And so had the patient uh, continue whatever he had with the lodopredinol, kept with the heat, uh, but then put him on, uh, on cyclosporin. So this is 0.09% that that's available. It comes with uh, what's called N-cell technology, which is essentially a, a carrier. The drug, the cyclosporin, is within the core. And then the shell, I have no idea what that is, uh, the, the hydrophilic the shell. Sign of the universe that we should <laughs> be finishing sign, up, I think. That's fine <laughs> for me to say, shut up. And so anyways, he still had dry eye, brought the patient back. And in, in the end, the, the, the story here, yes, I had to use it at various drops. The speed questionnaire uh, on this next follow-up, it was 16 last time, it's 15 now. The vision's still doing okay, uh, but, and as well as the improvement in the MMP9 and, and the osmolarity, but the patient is not relieved of his symptoms. And so that's where I, uh, well, of course, he never got the 0.09% the, the because we live in an insurance world, so that got switched to Lafitagrass. It was causing blurring, so I used that at night. I, I used a veriticlin spray because this is what we had at the time. 
And as we know, by stimulating the, the, the ethmoid sinus or the ethmoid nerve, that helps increase the natural tear. And this works on the lipid, it works on the aqueous, as well as the mucin component. And I also recommended thermal pulsation. But this is the reason why I had this case is because here's a case where this patient would be a candidate for uh, MIBO, I'll just say the word, instead of saying that per fluorohexyl octane fast. Uh, but this is somewhere when, whenever we're seeing the tear film breakup time, anytime we're seeing the symptomatic patient, day 15, day 57, statistically significant and something that I'm excited to use for this patient going forward. So I will say with a patient like that, um, you know, you always do have to pay attention to what they can get and what they're willing to get. And, you know, obviously you keep recommending that he has some sort of in-office procedure. I can't recall if he had rosacea or not, but, you know, IPL certainly could be an option, but not everybody can afford those things. So you do have to remember that you can use steroid. You, you can use generic restasis. You can, there are things that you can do to make it less expensive. Right now, you can try MIBO for free, and then, you know, who knows what's going to happen when we get to the next round, but it, it probably is worth a try. If you have patients, and, and this is what I've heard this week, if you have patients that suffer from reading symptoms, like they feel like they have to blink too much to be able to read clearly at night or something small, um, vote might be an option there too. It seems like that's an improvement in symptoms. So if you do try it, that might be a question that you ask and follow up with if their reading has improved. Thank you all very much uh, for, for attending this evening. And thank you to our Evolve team.